Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we are going to talk about work. You know, that thing that occupies so much of your time and your energy and your thinking. And we're going to talk with the author of a new book that really questions the role that work plays in our lives and says our devotion to our jobs leaves us exploited, exhausted, and alone. That's all next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So you meet someone new, and the first question you ask, or one of the first questions you ask, might be this. What do you do? What's your work? That may seem like an innocent question, and you may not even notice that you're asking it. It's just one of the things that we do to break the ice with new people. But in fact, that question speaks volumes about our culture. It shows us how work occupies so many different aspects of our lives in this country. By some estimates, we work 80,000 hours in our careers. But that's not just about time. What we do signals to other people our importance. It tells them approximately how much money we make and how much we're worth. But the concept of work has changed, and it really seems to be changing right now. As the pandemic has disrupted the lives of frontline workers who are disproportionately poorer and browner, a lot of people are beginning to question what work really means to them. What kind of relationship do people want to have to their work? And how much do they want to invest to attempt to climb the economic ladder or reach some other marker of success in their jobs? And it's not only frontline workers who are doing this reflecting. There are a lot of white-collar workers who are switching jobs or cutting down on how much they work. There are some countries who are trying out 30-hour work weeks, and there are some companies that are trying four-day work weeks. The very concept of work appears to be shifting all around us. And that leaves us with a lot of questions. What's wrong with the way that we work now? And why do so many people seem to want to change it? And even further, how do we make work work better for all of us? Those questions are at the core of a new book by Sarah Jaffe, who is a Type Media Center reporting fellow, a co-host of the podcast Belabored, and author of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Yes, exploited, exhausted, and alone. Pretty high-dudgeon kind of language to describe how we feel about work. Sarah Jaffe, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you do a remarkable job in this book of covering a wide variety of sectors of work and their history. Let's start with talking really briefly about how work has changed over the last century in America. 
Yeah, I feel like Detroit is a great place to be having this conversation. It's, it's right? ground because zero, you have, right? You have watched it happen in real time. That's things right. that maybe some people have not experienced in the same way. Um, you can't miss in Detroit, right? I'm talking about deindustrialization, of course. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the key factor of sort of the industrial work ethic, right? The sort of mid-century ideal that people could go get a job at a factory without having to get a special education for it. And that it would be a decently paid job that you would have week and time with your family. You could buy a house. You could maybe send your kids to college so they didn't have to work in the factory. Um, but that's gone for so many people, right? That's a much, much smaller part of the working experience mm-hmm. all in this country, right? The factories are gone, closed, automated, they're overseas. And that option of doing that job that you probably didn't enjoy the work itself, but that it was going to be, you were working for what the job got you, the things that you could buy, the lifestyle you could maintain. With the disappearance of the industrial job, we've also changed our relationship to work based on the kinds of work that more people are doing now. So things like retail work, service work are a much, much bigger part of the economy now. So is healthcare work. Um, and so is on some level creative work. And these are all these kinds of jobs that we are expected to have a different relationship to than those old industrial jobs. We're expected to enjoy them. Mm-hmm. We're expected to care about them, care about the people that we're serving, or at very least to. And over that century, we've also come, I think, to identify more strongly if not with the job itself, yeah. with the work, right? So many of us, and, mm-hmm. and look, and now I'm talking about myself, um, yeah. so many of us, I, I think, think of ourselves as, you know, completely defined by the work yeah. they do. I mean, I, I yeah. talk about how, when I say I'm a journalist, I'm not saying what job I have or what right. jobs I have. I'm I'm talking about the way I think about the world and I yeah. and the way I interact with with people all the time and I feel like that's something that has maybe just become more prevalent or common uh, in, in yeah. the 21st century than it was in the 20th. Yeah, I think you put your finger on something interesting in there too, which is that people change jobs a lot more often mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. So we do sort of identify with this thing that we are, right? A journalist in your case and mine um, at the, not at the expense, but sort of rather than identifying with one particular job. Whereas if you were an auto worker at the Ford plant, right? You identify with that particular job. Um, not so much. I'm an auto worker, but I work at Ford. I work at work at Ford. Right. That's how we say it. And because, Detroit, it's right, Ford's. Because, you know, <laughs> right. For a Ford's. while, at least, you know, that there were still are people in, in some cases who, you know, spent their entire career working in one place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so now we have a much more insecure job market, right? People shift jobs a lot more, staying in, you know, oh God, I always forget the statistic about like how many mill- jobs millennials will have over the course of their career, mm-hmm. but it's a lot. Um, I've never had a job that lasted more than two years. Wow. Um, and I'm a freelancer right now, so I just have a million jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but that, right, that, that itself makes different demands on you, right? It, it it requires you behave sort of differently towards your work and towards what you do. It requires you sort of to always be networking, to be thinking about upward mobility, to be thinking about moving jobs. Um, one of the things that, you know, people have been talking about lately is this, this great resignation, right? Mm-hmm. But labor scholar Rebecca Given points out that it's really, once again, it's a great job shift. People are mostly not quitting work in order to never work again. People are mostly quitting work to try to find a better job. And so that is, you know, as usual these days, a sort of accelerated version of the trend that's been going on for decades. Yeah. And so the theme, the central theme of your book really questions the way that we've made that shift and and the way we've internalized, I guess, this concept of our work and and what it means to us. And I just want to start with uh, you know the, the 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 tagline that that accompanies the title, <laughs> how devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited, exhausted, 
and alone. Those are not. Uh, those are not <laughs> soft words. They are not. Uh, they are no. not ambiguous. Um, yeah. I mean, they're very. That's a very strong indictment. I think of mm. what work is is doing to us, or yeah. or I guess maybe the way to put it is, it's a strong indictment of what we're doing to ourselves. I mean, you say our devotion to our jobs, yeah. the devotion to our jobs. I mean, that's that's about us, not just work. Yeah, although I think that one of the arguments that I make and one of the reasons that I use the word exploitation is to point out that like somebody profits off of this. Sure. This is not just a choice that we make when we wake up in the morning, but like today I'm going to work for 12 hours. Um, we're working for 12 hours because that is being demanded of us in some way, right? Whether it's because I'm a freelancer and therefore I have to, you know, crank out this many pieces and this much of a book in order to, you know, continue to get paid and pay my rent. Mm-hmm. Um the, the, the point of using the word exploitation, which I kind of use in a technical Marxist sense, which is to say that like what exploitation is at the end of the day is that somebody is making more, extracting more value from your labor than they are paying you to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where profits come from. And so that's, it's, when we talk about exploitation, a lot of the time there's a sort of really emotional component to it, right? And we sort of be like, oh, but are you being exploited at your job? And my point is to say like, we're all being exploited at our jobs because that's how the entire system works. Like Jeff Bezos doesn't get however many hundred billion dollars he has without underpaying the workers who work in his warehouses and sure. drive his trucks and everything else. That's that's how that works. Um, and so, you know, on, on one level, it's a strong word. On another level, it's, it's a technical term that just sort of means like, this is how wage labor works. And I think that this idea that we do it for love obscures that fundamental power relation in the workplace that like doesn't go away just because you like what you do. Yeah, right. I mean, th- that line between the love that we have for our work, some of us yeah. at least, pe- I yeah. think the privileged among us, right? Um, mm. and, and the idea of being exploited, I think is, is one of the real distinctions among class right now, right? That that uh, you mm-hmm. and I, you and I exist in a different kind of a different kind of economic sphere than people who who can't find work steadily, people who can't find work that pays them enough to do the things that they want to do. I mean, uh, this the love of work is um, is common among a certain type of person. Is that is that fair? I, I would actually disagree with that. I think that for a lot of the lowest paid and, and most sort of devalued workers in our economy, there's also this incredible expectation that they will do it for love. Um, take home healthcare workers, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. People who do that kind of incredibly intimate, incredibly personal, caring labor are often paid close to minimum wage, are not paid for their travel time, are not paid if they stay overtime, um, work in really precarious conditions, which also, by the way, you know, reflects on the people who they're taking care of because the people they're taking care of get the result of all of that stress, the result of all of that uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Um, When we are thinking about the COVID pandemic, one of the early reasons that it spread so quickly in Washington state was that nursing home workers weren't paid enough at one nursing home to just have one job. Mm. So they were going from place to place and actually spreading the virus because they had to have two jobs in order to make ends meet. So I actually don't think that the demand to love your job is just something for people Mm. who are, you know, on the higher end of the economy. Also a lot of journalists I know are broke precisely because of this desire to uh, (laughs) do what we love. Right. I, you know, before I was a journalist, I was waiting tables, which is also a job that requires you love it, or at least perform loving it and Mm -hmm. perform loving your customers for (laughs) tips. Um, And, you know, I had years waiting tables where I made more money than I did as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think one of the things, again, that this demand, we love our jobs does is actually mitigate against people getting paid decently because you get told, you know, oh, there are a hundred people who would do your job. Right. There are, there are unpaid interns we could get to do your job. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is, you know, the, the internship being the ultimate example of all of this, because it is literally doing the entry level job you want to get for free. For you're, free. You're literally undercutting the future job you want to have. Um, and that, all of that sort of is a downward pressure itself on wages, on working conditions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with Sarah Jaffe. She is a Type Media Center reporting fellow 
and a co-host of the podcast Belabored. She's also the author of a provocative new book called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. We're talking about the relationship that all of us have, not just to our jobs, but to our work. How do we think about our work? Uh, What do we think about the need to do our work and the need to do enough work to make enough money to do all the things that we want to do in our lives? Also, is that idea of work and our relationship to work changing right now? We know, for instance, that lots of people, because of the pandemic, have been forced to think about work differently. Lots of other people have chosen to think about work differently. Uh, Are you one of the people who is doing that? Are you somebody who doesn't quite see your job or your work in the same way as you did before COVID-19 turned the whole world uh, upside down for all of us? We want to hear from you on the phones about how you're thinking about work right now, how you're thinking about your job, how you're thinking about your coworkers and the physical space in which you do work. Is that changing uh, dramatically right now? Uh, And especially we want to hear from you if you have just kind of had enough of the job that you have or the work that you're doing and have decided to do something else, to do it all really differently than you did before. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put uh, comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, again, also, we'd love to hear from you if you just are, if, you, if you're among some of the folks who've just said that's it and just gone in and, and, and quit your job and decided uh, to start over without much of, uh, much of a backup or a safety net. I know we, we have been reading lots of stories about people like that. We'd love to hear. Uh, if you are one of them. Before we get to uh, listeners, though, Sarah, I want to talk just a little about the mm-hmm. pandemic and the disruption of the pandemic and what you think it actually means mm-hmm. in this much longer and broader narrative of change in work. I mean, I think lots of people, and especially people who, uh, who focus on labor uh, all the time, have been saying, yeah, the, the the pandemic may have accelerated or altered some of these trends, but they were coming anyway, that people were starting to really think differently. Yeah, I think we've seen two events in the last slightly over 10 years that really accelerated all of these already existing trends in the workplace, that of course being the, the financial collapse and, and great recession of 2008, 2009, and then now the coronavirus pandemic, right? And the thing about COVID-19 is that it is, it is so obviously a workforce crisis, there's literally a of people being in close proximity to each other, right? Mm-hmm. That's how we spread the virus. Um, and so it required massive changes to the way we work in order to keep the economy coming. We were introduced to this whole new category of essential worker. And we had sort of, you know, for the first several months of it anyway, sort of big kind of public battles mm-hmm. about what work was going to be, which work was essential, what was going on in the places that were essential, right? Um, One of the places that saw the most, or one of the industries rather, that saw the most deaths from COVID was food service and food preparation, whether we're talking about the people working in, you know, food plants, the ones that went on strike, the Nabisco and Filet and Kellogg, or we're talking you know, slaughterhouses where meat is killed and prepared, mm-hmm. or we're talking about restaurants, line cooks were one of the most likely to die of COVID, yeah. which is, you know, horrifying if you think about it, speaking of people who are very underpaid. Um, and so, yeah, we all in some ways had our relationship to work changed by the pandemic, right? Either we went fully work remote, work from home. I work from home most of the time anyway, but Mm -hmm. this time I couldn't go do interviews face-to-face. I couldn't go sort of be a journalist on the ground because I wasn't supposed to leave the house. Um, Or you were still going into your workplace. Again, I've mentioned nursing homes, restaurants, all of these things where people were going in and doing the same job they'd always done. It had just gotten a lot more dangerous. Um, Or you just lost your job. Yeah. 
And, you know, remember that line from the the employment numbers early on where it just was a straight red line straight up with how many layoffs there had been because, Mm -hmm. you know, the government decided to do COVID support through the unemployment system here. So everybody basically got a shock around work in early 2020. And in a lot of cases, that shock just keeps on going, right? We keep having struggles about like, are the schools going to be open for in-person teaching or should they be remote? Um, I I keep talking to teachers throughout all of this because I feel like they've been um, a sort of key place of where these battles are being played out. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so we see all these questions of like, how much is my work worth? Is it worth my life? Is this job that I previously thought was, you know, maybe okay, maybe decent? I remember talking to a worker at Sephora, the makeup store, mm-hmm. who was like, you know, before the pandemic, it wasn't like a great job. It paid $15 an hour and I got to put makeup on people and that was, you know, fine. But when they wanted her to go back in before there were vaccines or anything, she was just like, I don't want to die for lipstick. (laughs) You know, that's not a great, that's not a great incentive. Right. Right. Exactly. $15 an hour just isn't enough to risk my life for, you know, putting lipstick on someone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Sarah Jaffe about her book, work won't love you back. How devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited, exhausted, and alone. And we'll start to hear from you, our listeners, about your experience with work right now, what you're thinking about work and your job. If you're in the middle of a job change, Jeff in East Point, Zoe in Ferndale, Christopher in Detroit, we'll hear from you first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we can uh, include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Sarah Jaffe. She's a Type Media Center reporting fellow, a co-host of the podcast Belabored, and the author of a book called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. We're talking about the nature of work, the relationship that we all have to our jobs and our work right now, how it's been disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, but also how it's just been disrupted by our culture for quite some time. We think about work really differently than we did 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, especially here in the city of Detroit. Think of how work has changed just in my lifetime since the the early 1970s in our city. We want to hear from you about how work is changing, how you're feelings about work are changing, how your relationship to your work uh, is changing right now. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and put comments there, and we can try to include you in the conversation that way. Let's start today with Zoe in Ferndale. Zoe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Good morning. Mm -hmm. Good morning. Um, I want to say, so I actually just read Sarah's book while I was taking some time off work searching for a new job. So a lot of these concepts have been really on my mind when I decided what I was looking for in a new job. Mm-hmm. I work from home. I'm going to continue that. So I come from a place of pretty solid privilege. And when I read this book, what really struck me most was like the idea of emotional labor, these jobs that are primarily held by women that require so much more of a person emotionally than, hmm. you know, just showing up and doing a job. And these, I mean, these jobs are just totally undervalued. Teachers are essential healthcare workers, every single aspect of it. Looking towards the future, like what do you think is the most impactful thing that we as a society can do to shed light on this work and actually start paying these primarily women and other people, what their their worth is for these super important jobs they're doing. Mm. Uh, uh, Zoe, really, really great, uh, 
really, really great question. And Sarah, before you answer, I want to mm-hmm. read just a quote in the book that says, to ask for capitalism to pay for care is to call for an end to capitalism. Uh, th- th- that gets to this this question that Zoe's asking, but but also kind of reaches to the the gendered nature of uh, of of work. Who does the work that cares mm-hmm. for other for other Americans? Yeah, and that's such a good point. And thank you, Zoe, for reading the book. Um, it is still a fact, and I think we saw this again more than ever during the pandemic, that most of the unpaid caring labor in our society is still being done by women in the home, and that that factor has affected so many jobs that are done in the paid workforce outside of the home, or these days maybe on the home, but via Zoom, Um that means that our perception of who should be teaching, who should be nursing, who should be a home care worker um, is heavily gendered, right? So we assume that women will do these jobs and we assume that women will not be paid that much for them Mm -hmm. and that women will do them out of love and women will be incredibly self-sacrificing. And the, you know, the way that women in those jobs have been challenging that is by organizing and, you know, refusing dangerous conditions, refusing to go back, for instance, teaching in person, unless there are certain safety precautions taken or nurses. I've been covering a strike in Massachusetts by the nurses at St. Vincent Hospital, which just ended after 10 months on strike. And their biggest demands were around staffing levels. They said, we're understaffed. We don't have enough nurses and we can't take good care of our patients and we're all exhausted and stressed out. And so we need you to commit to better staffing levels so that we can actually do our job better. And I think that's the kicker in organizing even by these workers who do caring labor is that so many of their demands, when they do make demands, are in fact demands get better for the people that they are responsible for as well. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Zoe, really love the the, the call and the great question. Thanks so much. Uh, let's go next to Jeff in East Point. Jeff, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Hey. Uh, thanks for taking my call and mm-hmm. thanks, Sarah. Um, th- this topic is, is wonderful, so thank you for doing this. Uh, I've worked in education for 30 years, and uh, you guys are talking about education and home care workers. And uh, this topic, right now across the country, we're seeing a staffing shortage, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this ties into everything that you guys are talking about. Right now, so many educators are leaving the profession because of everything that you guys have just talked about. Hmm. They're overworked, they're stressed, and... Their, their life is not what they thought it was going to be when they went into the profession. And uh, I remember there's a quote. There's a podcast that uh, Al Franken does, and he was talking to the former president of MEA, or NEA, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And he said in that, when they were talking about policy and all these things, they, he said, but that's where we get you. We know that you love your job. Mm. Yeah. And so you're going to take and bend less. You're going to, you know, take less and bend because you're doing this for human beings. Like you're talking about home care workers, human beings in education, mm-hmm. working with yeah. kids, and you love it. And so you fight and you fight and you're exhausted and you just give up. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, maybe not totally, but you give up and take less. Yeah. Uh, Jeff? And I'm so many education boards, you can read how educator after educator after educator, and I've also been involved in organizing for like 25 years, mm-hmm. yeah. and you can see that so many people are so burnt, so frustrated, they're leaving the profession altogether. Yeah. So Jeff, they- Jeff, I want to I wanna get uh, Sarah a chance to, to respond, but before I, before I do, I, I want you to talk, I, I get the sense, of course, that you're talking a lot here about yourself, too. Um, give me a sense of how you're navigating all of that. Like, what, what, what does this look like for you right now, Jeff? Well, for me personally, mm-hmm. um, I can retire. I could retire today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to retire I, everything I just said, I love my job. Hmm. I'm a, I'm, I'm a special education paraprofessional. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, when we talk about education, we know that so many 
parts of education uh, professions get left out. Paraprofessionals are mm-hmm. probably one of the top of the list. You never, you hardly ever hear paraprofessionals mm-hmm. and how much we do and how integral we are to our districts and our communities and to our um, our districts. And uh, But for me personally, that's where I'm at. Everything you guys are talking about is exactly me. So I, that's why I wanted to call in. And I'm not alone. There's so many other mm-hmm. people that are close to retirement, but they don't want to go. But, you know, you, you're, you're organizing, you're working with districts, you're, you know, bargaining and all these things. And you get, you guys have already said it. What are you told over and over and over again? And then like Mm -hmm. Al Franken said, they know you, they know they got you. Because if, if school districts go on strike, whether it's against the law in the state or not, like here in Michigan, it's against the law for us to right, strike. You can't strike. What yeah. did they? Yeah, but what did they do? They beat you over the head. See, that's abandonment. You don't love your mm-hmm. kids. Yeah. And the whole time you're like, no, we're doing it because we love <laughs> our kids and we yeah. want this to be better. Mm-hmm. Jeff, yeah. I, I, I love that you called and, and shared as much as you did about what's going on in your profession and, of course, how, how you're navigating it. And I, I, I know a lot of people who are in that very specific circumstance where they could retire, uh, but they don't want to because they do love their work. But everything that happens uh, on their job suggests to them that they're not valued the way they want to be and that they would be better off just kind of walking away. Sarah, I wonder what your reaction is to, to Jeff's call. Yeah, I'm actually in the middle of reporting a story on teachers and the great resignation. And it's been so depressing to me because I've I've obviously in this book, I wrote a chapter on teachers. I've been covering teachers and teacher organizing for, you know, over a decade now. And it's been so sad to me how many of the people who are my contacts, people that I've talked to for stories, who are some of the most committed teachers out there, who are really leaders in their schools, are leaving or have left. I wish the story was so much harder to report than it is, mm-hmm. but you know, it's been incredibly frustrating to me looking at the, the one-sidedness of this dis- discussion where people everywhere and sort of every newspaper and every whatever, it, the conversation is all people saying that teachers need to get back in in person or else um, and that they are responsible for learning loss and kids' mental health and all of these things because, you know, um, they're, some somehow selfish for not wanting to go back into an overcrowded classroom to spread COVID-19 around 40 students who are in a room that was built for 20. Mm-hmm. And I just, it makes me want to scream. And, you know, the best part is when, of course, teachers are pitted against moms as though teaching isn't a 70-something percent women occupation. Therefore, a lot of teachers are moms um, and all dads. And the way that this whole conversation has gone is just, unfortunately, so predictable, as Jeff was saying, right? Like we know what they're going to say every time you don't love the kids enough. And at some point it's like, we're seeing now I've been collecting stories of the lengths that school districts are going to, to just get warm bodies in front of a classroom. And Mm -hmm. it's so everything from police officers to unvetted volunteers from the community, getting parents to come in. And, you know, we're seeing kids now over the last couple of weeks, kids are doing school walkouts saying like, this isn't safe. We want a remote learning option. We are not learning because they're literally just sticking a body in front of the classroom. And the devaluation of the that teachers do by saying that we're just going to get a parent volunteer who's never been in a classroom before and stick them in front of a room. It's so obvious that what people want in that situation is not the teaching at all. What they're valuing there is literally having a place for the kids to go so their parents can go to work. Yeah. 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 Again, Jeff, I, I, I really love that you called and, uh, and shared the, the perspective that, that, that you have and the experience that you're having right now, I think it's such a critical part of the conversation that we're having about work overall is the experience of the people who, who educate our, our kids. And, and it, is, uh, it is a complicated picture. So again, thanks for, for calling and demystifying it just a bit. Uh, I want to add uh, some social media comments to the to the conversation here. Naeem on Twitter says, uh, we can't talk about jobs and wages without talking about the cost of living, consumerism, Mm -hmm. and a culture that tends to encourage or force us to live beyond our ends. I think that's a really interesting uh, observation. Michael on Twitter says, 
okay, perform loving is complete, uh, completely different from actual loving when he's talking about uh, the way you described some people perform loving their jobs, Sarah. He says that helped. He said, I know literally no person who enjoys their job. They need health insurance <laughs> and money for rent. It's a pretty small group who actively likes their job. Uh, from what I see, Big Neo on Twitter says, unless hourly wages increase proportionate to the decrease of worked hours, only salaried workers will be able to take advantage of a shorter work day or work week. That's a really interesting insight. Uh, he said, I'm not against a shorter work week, but that change will further reveal the gap between classes. Um, let's go next to Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers. Aaron, welcome to the show. Good morning. I quit my job last year because I was done with being degraded and expected to work outside of normal business hours and be available all the time. Hmm. I was proud of the job I did, but I didn't want it to become my entire life. And I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. Aaron, can you be a little more specific about degraded? What, what was happening at work that made you feel degraded? Being constantly told that no matter what you did, how well you did it, or how long you worked, that it wasn't enough. I think most of the listeners here are familiar with the performance review, which seems to be designed to let a lot of, a lot of employees know that they're just on the brink of, of being fired. And instead of being congratulated or, or praised, not even with money, but just being told, um, the impression is given that you're very close to losing your job here and you better be careful or else that's it. And I don't want to be on that brink anymore. Yeah. And I want to enjoy my life. And the next job I get, no one is going to disrespect me ever again. I'll be so, out. Aaron, what are you doing uh, if you quit your job and I presume didn't have another one lined up right away? What What's that been like? I, I took another job during the elections season mm -hmm. that I enjoyed at the Detroit Department of Elections. Uh -huh. And then I, I was unfortunately hit by a, a car. Someone decided to go 85 <laughs> down a residential street oh and T-bone me. So I, I've been recovering for the past six months, but now I'm ready to look for work again now that I can drive again and I've recovered from my traumatic brain injury. Oh, oh. Aaron, uh, that's, I mean, that's a terrible story, and I hope uh, I hope things uh, get better for you in in that regard, and and that you're able to find work that you find more fulfilling. But but Sarah, that that's such a stark description of yeah. the way that so many people I think feel at work, and that's a I think that's a different question maybe than we have been talking about, which is um, which is how valued people feel. Yeah. by their employers mm -hmm. uh, and how that affects how you feel about the work that you're doing. Yeah, I think the way that particularly this sort of double bind plays out, right, where you are expected to show up and be enthusiastic and be excited and ready to work. And, you know, when you go on a job interview, and I, I have this very clear memory of a job interview that I went on. It was a restaurant job. You know, it was job waiting tables. They were going to pay me $2.13 an hour and everything else was going to come from the customers. And they were like, where do you see yourself in five years? And I just <laughs> looked at the guy and I wanted to be like, not here. <laughs> you know, like not doing this. you're going to pay me two bucks an hour and you want me to perform all this excitement that I'm going to come in here and serve plates of food to people. And you know what? Like I will show up and I will do my job. But like you are not paying me enough to demand this level from me, yeah. you know, and it's it's really new everywhere. Um, somebody on Twitter reading this book mean great tweet. Somebody tagged me on Twitter the other day and like some job um, questionnaire that was just like asking people about like the, you know, the governmental system in China versus the U.S. and whether like a benevolent dictatorship was, it was just like, what? This is for like an entry level development job. But I was just like, you've got to be kidding me, right? right? Like what? Like the expectations have gone up 
so much and like the pay has not. And as the, the Twitter comment that you read said, right, like we have, you know, housing costs have been going up. It's funny because we only start talking about inflation when certain costs go up. But like for most working people, housing costs have gone through the roof in yeah. the last couple of decades. Yeah. Um and, you know, we don't, we don't hear about inflation when that's happening. We just hear about inflation when like wages have gone up in a couple of industries, then we're worried about inflation. Um, and, and this entire set of pressures, right, has just gotten more intense. And yeah, it's no wonder that people are just ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation with Sarah Jaffe, and we'll continue to hear from you on social media and on the phones. Gloria and Christopher in Detroit will get to you next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter for comments there, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Sarah Jaffe is our guest. She's a Type Media Center reporting fellow, co-host of the podcast Belabored, and the author of a book titled Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. We're talking about the nature of work and our relationship to it this hour, and we want to hear from you. How has your idea of work changed? How has your idea of work changed in the last few years as COVID-19 has really disrupted the workplace and the way we work? Uh, was it changing before the pandemic, before COVID-19? Were you thinking differently about how much you work, where you want to work, and what you want to get out of the work you do other than, of course, money and benefits? <clears throat> as always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter. Put comments there. We'll work you into the conversation that way. Let's go next to Christopher in Detroit. Christopher, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Um, what we need to take into account is that the selling class is comprises basically the service class and the pedestrian classes and the lower working classes. And, uh, what we need is a twofold solution, which uh, the first is um, what I dub as trust-backed universal basic income, mm. where, it, where it gives individualized uh, endowment trusts to uh, firms, which are businesses, uh, institutions, and uh, heads of households to start. Um, which will give accommodation, which is the cost of living and the cost of operation for those businesses that are too big to fail and and the mom and pops that are in the area. Mm. Um, this will basically eliminate uh, taxes uh, uh, for the most part uh, and only will need taxes for the cost of inflation. And then it will instantly we will be able to institute a 20-hour work week um, because the businesses are covered by trust. Yeah, and we'll be uh, able to accommodate that. Christopher, and, I don't want to I don't want to cut you off, but I want to get to your second point quickly so we can get back to to Sarah to have her respond. What was you said? You had two 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 different ideas. Basically, by doing this uh, is the denouncing of uh, uh, Americanism, but it has to be done through race by denouncing race on all levels of government. Mm. Uh, um, Christopher, I, I, I really appreciate the call and uh, the comment. I think the, the, the UBI <clears throat> idea in, in particular has a lot to do with the way we think about work and the way we think about the way that we take care of ourselves. Uh, Sarah is, as Christopher says, 
something like universal basic income part of the solve to our difficulties with with work and the idea of work? I mean, one of the most interesting things about the pandemic response, right, is that we did, in fact, learn that the government can, in fact, send us all a check because mm -hmm. they did a couple of times, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, we had a version of a basic income in the child tax credit, which now, unfortunately, looks like it's not going to survive this next round of whatever the heck is going on in the Senate. I am not going to even get into um, but, you know, for however many months here, we've been sending checks to people who have children, and that is a form of basic income, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's also a, a pretty profound statement on the part of the government that, you know, and the part of all of us, that we all have an investment in raising children and making sure that they're cared for, right? I don't have children of my own, and I'm quite happy for my tax dollars to be going to a child tax credit. It's pretty high on the list of things I would like to keep my taxes paying for, and I could give you a list of what I don't want them paying for, but that's another story. <laughs> right. um, but this, this idea, right, that actually, like, we should have a right to a decent life that doesn't require being humiliated on the job, like your caller Aaron was saying, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't require um, making these sort of life or death choices going into the workplace because the other choice is, is a different kind of life or death choice, right? Is paying the bills. Yeah. And yeah, I think we are seeing renewed interest in things like basic income precisely because people have realized, you know, that these are, these are very clearly life and death choices. This is, again, this is something that the pandemic, I think, made excruciatingly clear. Yeah. Yeah. Again, uh, I really appreciate the call and the comments, Christopher. Let's go to Gloria in Detroit. Gloria, welcome to the show. Yeah. Good morning. Can mm -hmm. you hear me? I can. All right. So I uh, thank you for taking my call. I was con connecting with what you're talking about. And as one that has been in the not-for-profit uh, direct service advocacy policy change kind of work most of my life, analyzing systems, I have two questions or two comments, questions, if, if you have time to answer them. One is, how, how has this pandemic changed this whole approach of our work in this whole sector mm. of the not-for-profit service mm. work? Mm. And the second one, which I am very interested in, too, is, and I use the word intersectionality or partnership with mm. the kind of workers and kind of work you're talking about, because just to use education, we um, advocates, activists have analyzed why education or health systems are not working. We've got that information. We've got systems understanding. So it would be very valuable, and I hope mm. it's already happening, that conversation among the different sectors so that we can come up with benefiting from the wisdom of each sector. So I'm not trying to divide, mm. but to, to partner. Yeah. So that's, that's my comment. God, Gloria. Yeah, not a whole program, uh, but <laughs> let's just pick it up now. <laughs> yeah, Gloria, I really appreciate the call and the, the insight. Sarah, what's your, your reaction? Yeah, the nonprofit sector has been under so much stress this year too, right? That's one of the chapters in my book is on nonprofits. Um, and I actually last week was um, the guest at a meeting of the nonprofit professional employees union because um, they have grown exponentially during the pandemic. I mm -hmm. think there was a period where I was getting a press release from them once a week <laughs> with a new organization that had unionized because, you know, again, all of the pressures that are on sort of direct service and advocacy organizations just ramped up to 11 in the last year. And people, again, are feeling the pressure to work longer and don't you care about the people who we serve um, and that all of those caring pressures that we were talking about when we talk about teachers and home care workers were also happening on nonprofit workers. It's just that, you know, in many cases you're working in an office or working from home, but you still have all of that stress of like your work is going to affect the lives of this many people if you don't do it right. And yeah, and that has the same effects on those workers. It is the effects of overwork and underpay and all of it. And I think one of the things that I try to do with this book is, is put these different industries, these different sectors, as your, your caller was saying, um, in conversation with each other and see how what they have in common, what's a little bit different in this sector, but that you might see creeping into yours. Um, because those expectations are kind of everywhere and they're kind of, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're pervasive, yeah. but they're a little bit different in every place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gloria, I really appreciate the, the very thoughtful 
uh, call there. Uh, quickly, let's go to Abe in Detroit. Abe, I've only got about a minute left, but I wanted to get you in here. Okay, how you doing? I'm a mm-hmm. small-time employer, employer mm-hmm. and when I bring people in to work, I let them know that they can get raises every month mm-hmm. if they improve on the job. So there's no question that if you improve on a job and I say improvement, you will get a raise. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a $150 raise a week or $100 raise a week based on your performance. So I don't try to keep all the money for myself. I try to share the wealth. Yeah. That keeps my guys happy, and we go for it. Yeah. So I think one of the problems is that you need to take care of your employees, and they will be happy on the job, and let them know that 20 cent an hour raise doesn't help them out. Right. You need to give them a raise that they can see. A real raise. Yeah. A real raise. Yeah. And that's what I try to do for my employees. I'm a small businessman. I don't have that many employees, and what I do is try to take care of them. Yeah. Uh, Abe, I, I, I love that you called, uh, especially... Um, Sarah, we've only got, a, uh, like I said, about a minute left now, less, but uh, I want to have you react to what Abe's talking about. There's, there is yeah. this kind of partnership that we're looking for here between employers and employees that will make employees uh, not maybe not love their work, but, but value it a little more. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Abe hit the nail on the head, right? People want to feel valued mm-hmm. and they want that value to be demonstrated and not just by saying, you know, oh, we're all a family here, but like, hey, man, you're doing a good job. Let me, you know, kick you some more money so that we can actually keep you around. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not that hard at the end of the day, <laughs> right? I mean, there are a lot of things that are hard, but like demonstrating materially that you value your employees is not like a, it's not rocket science. Right, right. Okay, Sarah Jaffe, it was really great to have you here with us to talk about work. Uh, Congratulations on the book, and uh, thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk with Congressman Fred Upton about what the new political districts are going to mean for his future and about his place in a Republican Party that is becoming more and more under the influence of former President Donald Trump. We'll also have Aaron Reddish here to talk about what is happening with Russia and Ukraine. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.